Hello and welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is screenwriter Warren Scarron. Born in 1946, Scarron was appointed to head the Texas Film Commission in 1970, tasked with bringing film production to the Lone Star State. While there, Scarron helped dozens of films get made in Texas, most notably Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, and was one of the driving forces behind getting a small film called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre National Distribution. Scarron had a personal financial stake in Chainsaw, and despite its tangled, sometimes extra-legal chain of ownership, its success helped pave the way for him to go to Hollywood. Despite his background in producing, Scarron found success in screenwriting. After helping polish the story to 1986's Fire with Fire, a Romeo and Juliet story starring Virginia Madsen and Craig Sheffer, he found himself working on Top Gun. Despite Scarron's months of work on the film, the vagaries of Writers Guild rules left him uncredited on the finished movie. But that didn't matter. Top Gun's massive, transcending success kicked Scarron's career into overdrive. He moved on to another Tony Scott film, Beverly Hills Cop 2, which was another hit. Despite working on numerous original works, Scarron quickly developed a reputation as a master script doctor. Scarron then collaborated with Tim Burton, where he helped bring Beetlejuice to life. That was also a massive hit, and Scarron's good working relationship with Burton helped him land a high-profile, but then creatively struggling, project, Batman. For anyone else's career, that's where we'd say, and the rest is history. Unfortunately, and unknown to almost everyone, even in Scarron's inner circle, he was deathly ill with cancer. A firm believer in holistic medicine, Scarron pursued different ways of curing his disease until it was far too late. Not even two years after Batman changed Hollywood, Scarron was dead at the age of just 44, but his work lives on. Joining me to discuss the too short career of Warren Scarron is the author of Rewrite Man, the life and career of screenwriter Warren Scarron, Allison Makor. Hi, Allison. Hey, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I absolutely loved your book. Thank you so much. Yeah, Warren is not a well-known person, and <laughs> I just found his story fascinating. Yeah, I mentioned to you off air that outside of his name on the credits to Beetlejuice and, and of course, Batman, which as an 18-year-old comic book fan was you know, <laughs> loomed large in my imagination at the time of its release, I didn't know anything about him at all. And of course, I didn't even really know until a couple of years after Batman had come and gone that he had passed away. And so I knew virtually nothing about the man. And everything now I know about him is coming from your book, which, again, I thought was an absolutely terrific read. And there's so much stuff I wanted to ask you about uh, this very interesting, as I said, too short life and a career so brief and yet packed with one hit after the other. I mean... If you, if you go by just his track record, how many films did he work on and how many of them were massive hits? That's a batting average that like uh, unrivaled in Hollywood practically. I know. And, and, you know, he walked off days of thunder. So who knows what could have happened in that movie? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's going to lead to again, a bunch of things I want to ask you about, but let's, let's start at the beginning. Like. How did you come to write a book about Warren Scarron in the first place? Oh, it, it's kind of crazy. Um, so I'm a New Jersey native, but I moved to Austin, Texas um, in 1989 to go to grad school. I got my master's in film history and then went on for my doctorate because I wanted to teach film history, which I did on and off for 20 some years. Interestingly enough, about a few weeks after Warren died, I was a TA for a 
film history professor at UT. And this was, you know, he's kind of a tough guy. And I walked into his office. We were going to talk about the next semester. And he just looked really shattered. And I kind of said, what's going on? And he's like, I just heard the news that, you know, this amazing guy in town, Warren Skarin, passed away. Nobody knew he was sick. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow, that's awful. I'm sorry. So that was like... I don't know, 1990, when he, I heard about it in 1991, he died in 1990. And um, flash forward, I'm working on my first book, which is uh, a history of the Austin film scene, all the well-known movies that came out of Austin, Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Slacker, Spy Kids. And I was in, somebody said to me, if you're going to write about Chainsaw, you really need to go learn about Warren Skerritt. And I said, why is that? He's like, well, he was kind of the guy who got the distributor, you know, Brian Stint, who had this long history. He it was totally mobbed up company. And <laughs> when I went into the archive, there was this yellow legal pad I found. Um, and it had a list of all of these international cities and a, on the other column, a list of, you know, the grosses that the theaters reported for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it was very organized, very logical. And if you know anything about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, everything that went on behind the scenes with that movie was the opposite of that. And I thought, (laughs) oh my gosh, like, who is this guy? You know, and I really, I came home from that archival trip and I said to my husband, oh, my gosh, I just, you know, really got deep into Warren Skarin's archives. I want to I think I want to write about him. And, you know, I was also realizing how long it was going to take to write that first book. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that book anymore. It's going to be too hard. I obviously finished that book, um, but I knew that Warren's biography was going to be next on my list. And it was really that yellow legal pad that just sort of was the opening for me. I mean, what was it about that? It just they, they, you had an insight to this guy that you never would have expected. I mean, what was what what was about that? It was so captivating that you were yeah, going to write it, a book was, about it. Well, it was so organized, and I thought, well, gosh, you know, if if he's like the organized person behind the financial side of Chainsaw, like wow, that must have been a nightmare, and it kind of was. You know, uh, he had to go up to New York and meet with. The Perino brothers, who, you know, you want to steer clear of. I mean, as I said, I grew up in New Jersey, so I I, I know a little bit about that side of things. Um, <laughs> I really do. I went to school with, you know, kids whose parents were in the mob. So, As a New Jersey native, I, I hear you. <laughs> yes. And so, um, you know, I just thought, wow, this guy, you know, what was that like? And so, you know, that's when I really saw, oh, my gosh, um, you know, he was involved with Top Gun. He was involved with... Beetlejuice and Batman and then he died early oh god you know I just thought it was a really compelling story Um, and I had been a film critic sort of while I was getting my PhD a film critic in Austin and so I was I was interested in the scene and you know I'd written about Warren because he started the film commission so I just thought it was an interesting next project to kind of extend you know the Austin Hollywood connection a little bit. Now, one of the things I, I found, you know, I mean, found a, a ton of things interesting, but like he seemed to be, you get into his childhood, mm. uh, you know, and his days at college and stuff. And he seemed to be, and uh, you know, I talked about this just very briefly in the, in the intro about like, you know, he was deathly ill yeah. and he very rarely told anybody. I mean, even his own agent didn't know mm-hmm. until, until it was, 
basically far too late to, you know, really yeah. anything. The, the, the future was determined at that yeah. point. Two weeks before he died. Two, two weeks. weeks. Imagine right. that. Two weeks, yeah. right? And you can only imagine the deals that an agent is working on. I mean, his agent had to have been fielding a lot of offers and to not even realize that his client is, is this deathly ill. But he seems, he seemed to me from reading your book again, like a very internal guy, like didn't have, I, I didn't get the sense even he was married, but he didn't, I didn't get the sense that he had real close relationships with people necessarily. And yet it seems like to be the job in the film commission is to be very outgoing, you know, and like glad handing people and making deals and not, not in like a salesman way, but I, I, it just seems strange to me that he was so good at a job that from his background seems like he wouldn't really have a lot of natural ability at, maybe that's just me, you know, (laughs) I'm just kind of, I'm an internal person, but it's, I, he was really good at the film commission job. And that, that was a little surprising to me because it seems like where did he get that from? Well, he was an only child. And um, so he was he he was very internal. He had kind of a, a difficult childhood. Um, just, you know, it kind of his parents were older. And I go into it in the book. Um, I think he, like a lot of people, frankly, you know, I'm I'm a writer, I'm very introverted. But I had to become extroverted when I started teaching, you know, you mm-hmm. have to kind of sort of rise to whatever things demand of you. And I really think he he sort of cultivated that in college. He he started at Rochester Junior College and transferred to Rice University um, in Houston. And he became um, student body president and really presided at a time that was there was, you know, a huge uproar over um, the uh, naming of the next president of the university, I believe. Mm -hmm or it was a trustee. Anyway, it was the, you know, he got the campus wound up about it and did, you know, a a quiet protest. It was a protest, but it was unlike a lot of the protests going on college campuses in 1969. It was very organized, very orderly. He had students, he, he said, we need to wear suits and ties and dresses. So they see that we're serious and we're respectful. And, you know, it was really interesting. And I think that he just... I think he had leadership qualities for sure. And, and he, he rose to that and he gravitated toward that. He was, he was organized. He was a very, he was so good at active listening, you know, really making people feel as if he heard them. And I think in Hollywood that just, you know, really went a long way, even though, you know, he needed to refuel a lot. Um, to sort of, you know, protect his introverted side. Yeah, well, that's something I want to get to a little bit later on in our discussion is that one of the things that I, I found notable is that I think for the for the average person who doesn't know how movies are made, right, they only have an idea. Like, if you ask them, what's a screenwriter do, right? And you say, well, he writes the movie, you know what I mean? Like, what, and, and how is it that you are a, a successful screenwriter in Hollywood? You write good screenplays, right? That seems like, well, that's part of it, you know? But something that I, I found really interesting, and you get into it in detail in the book, is he was so good at working with talent. Mm. Really good. And again, we'll get into it a little bit later because there's something regarding Top Gun and then Batman and stuff. But that was something that seemed to come naturally to him, that he was able to work with people of enormous egos, 
and you know enormously driven people and yet able to kind of like soothe them a little and kind of get them to go along with the project that they mm-hmm. were going along with as a you know at a, at a point there i mean we look at it now especially post top gun maverick right. and you look at it and you say it's amazing to think that cruz was so skeptical about that movie for as long as he was. It, it seems like a fait accompli now. You're like, well, he's Top Gun. Of course he is. Right. But he was really uncertain about it. And so much of it was Scarin kind of guiding him through the process a little and listening to him and mm-hmm. taking in what what Cruz wanted. But also, I think, being a little bit of a psychologist the most of like trying to like, all right, what is this guy? What, what insecurities is this movie star presenting to me? And how can I alleviate that by listening to him writing what he wants but also obviously he's got to write something that fits the film right. but he he was he was really like a baby I don't know, like a babysitter that's probably the wrong term but he did a lot more of that than i would have guessed would have been the job of a screenwriter i would think that's almost a producer's job but scarin seemed to work very closely with a lot of the big name talent that he was involved with i yeah he earned their trust and i think that then, you know, I mean, Batman, and he did say to close friends, you know, he wondered if Batman really killed him. I mean, obviously, Batman didn't give him cancer, but it was a very, very grueling project. Um, There were that the layers of involvement there were extensive, you know, Um, there was Tim Burton, there was Warner Brothers, there was Bob Kane. <laughs> I love Bob Kane's note, you know, to scare when he came on that project. He's like, you may know that I'm, I was like, oh boy, here we go. I, uh, I, I, I can't wait to ask you about that part because <laughs> that part made me, I don't know, Allison, how immersed you are in the world of comic book nerdery. Yeah. Um, I am. I, you know, I know that stuff in my bones. So reading, uh, not, to, I'm sorry to, you know, but like the idea that Bob Kane was able to muscle his way and we're jumping way ahead, but I can't help I it. I know. The idea that Bob Kane, who basically had nothing to do with Batman since around 1940 <laughs> had and had no clue what was going on with it at all was still able to, by the sheer dint of his personality, was able to muscle a creative role into that film is to a comic book nerd laughable. You're like, you are you kidding me? You the guy doesn't even know what the guy hasn't touched a comic book page in five decades and yet he's like, oh, I'm the authority on Batman. Like, first of all, you co-created the character. You didn't even create the character. You (laughs) co-created it. But you know, Bill Finger but it's just the amount of like big footing he did on that movie is so funny to me. Cause you're like, boy, that guy, he yeah. just had ego to spare. Holy God. Well, they all did. Right. I mean, I, I well, always, but- like the first, <laughs> no. um, the, my, my first book, you know, was, is it history of the Austin film scene? And I always joke that the working title was big babies. Um, the movies <laughs> they made and the tantrums they threw. <laughs> You know, there's just, it's eco, right? It's, it's a art, it's creativity and, and it's about ownership. And so I think Scarin certainly had an ego and I think you, you see it come out, especially toward the end in the statements he had to write to the writers guild, you know, when mm-hmm. credit was being arbitrated. I think he was learning. I need to take more ownership here. Right. 
But I think he was able to, you know, sublimate, is that the right word? His ego and really just look at people. You know, he was so interested in psychology. One of his closest friends was a psychologist and they talked a lot about these projects. And I think he was able to sort of give people what they needed, but it was, it took a toll. It certainly took a toll. So one last thing I do want to talk about at the Texas Film Commission before we talk about him moving off to Hollywood is like, again, like I mentioned in the intro, like one of the big films that he helped get made was The Getaway, Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway. And just, again, just that, just dealing with Sam Peckinpah. like that's that's... off the plane drunk, you know, and Warren's like, oh, (laughs) and Warren was, I think, at that point, 25, 26. I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. Oh my goodness. I was like, I was still believed in Santa Claus at 25. And here I am dealing with <laughs> Sam Peckinpah for God's sakes. And Steve McQueen again, no, right. no wall. And then the Steve McQueen, you know, Ali McGraw. Yeah, then that whole thing. Yeah. Oh my God. So, I mean, that's great training for going out to Hollywood and dealing with all these people. I mean, exactly. having it in your backyard. So, um, one thing I, I really wanted to ask you about because I was not able to find it is that he actually directed a documentary called Breakaway, which yeah. uh, I just is not available anywhere I could find it. It's not even on his IMDb profile, yeah. uh, which is shocking to me. I thought IMDb was like had all that stuff nailed down. Can you explain a little bit what that was? Because it's it. I really was dying to see it, and it's just it's just not available. Yeah, um, that is um, a documentary that um, um, an Austin guy fred fox you know asked him to help him with um it was this project of going up to alaska and and wanting to sort of you know record um him living on living off the land basically Mm -hmm. and scarion wrote the script and was flew up there at least once but i mean a lot of it was um the guy taking you know his own film footage um while he was up there um, it is a really interesting project, you know, I think very much kind of a vanity project in some way. Um, and, you know, it had its premiere here in Austin, you know, it definitely, you know, went out and played theatrically. I, I think it was a, it was a project that for Scarin, you know, it was the first one that really gave him, I think the kind of control and like the scope of a big, here's how you'd work on a movie kind of thing. Am I, am I remembering that right? Is it Fred Fox? Fred Fox maybe is the Gurkha movie uh, script that never got made. But anyway, um, it's a very interesting project. And yeah, I think there is a copy. I think I we talked about this over email in the Ransom Center, the Harry mm. Ransom Center at UT where Scarron's archives are. Mm. But yeah, Breakaway is really hard to find. I think there was a damaged... 16 millimeter copy floating around town at one point but yeah i don't know more about it right now yeah i i thought i was so i had no idea that he had ever directed anything uh and he had done a few um like documentary projects i think he worked on one about san antonio right Um, yeah so stuff like that um you know some people say oh he wanted to become a director i think he was definitely thinking about it especially when he was doing batman you know he spent a lot of time going around pinewood and talking to other other people like anton first and other people about you know what their jobs were and and what you know just trying to get as much info as he could about the film industry and you know what the different 
craft levels required. So he might have gone on to do that. He certainly, I think, had the vision to be a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had the ability to marshal people, you know, and move forward. Um, I don't think he had found the project yet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when he when he he dies young as he did, uh, you know, you could imagine that. Yeah, he might have moved on. A lot of screenwriters move on to to directing. That's right. that's a that's a definite career path for a lot of them. So you could see how uh, that could happen. Now, in in his archives that you got to look at, are all are most or some of his original screenplays in there? Because you mentioned a couple of his original uh, original movies who which see none of them really ever got produced like flawless the the jewel heist movie which jane fonda was like almost going to do and then yeah. not and then there was the one he did with michael douglas crimson eagle yeah it's it, interesting to me that he seemed when he was a, a script doctor he went from hit to hit to hit and yet his original ideas they just could not find purchase from anybody even something as sort of commercial as flawless which was a jewel heist movie that feels like wow that you know they hollywood never runs out of heist movies to make but uh are, are those screenplays in his archives were you able to read that stuff oh yeah yeah i read all of that and um you know another way to look at flawless is well you know another movie just beat them to the screen right. so it was you know his i think his sense of what would make a good movie was definitely there you know, the Michael Douglas thing, the Crimson Eagle, I think that would have happened, but Kathleen um, Turner got pregnant. And mm. so that pushed it. And then, you know, Michael Douglas, I think did, is that Fatal Attraction might have been around that time? Or he did some movie that, you know, showed him in kind of this different sort of a more dramatic role and he wanted to go in that direction and that I was think that's fatal attraction was yeah, yeah I, I think that's think what you mentioned fatal attraction. and they became super close friends i mean the amount of documentation on their friendship was pretty extensive in the book i have a picture i think of the facts that warren sent when douglas was up the day of the oscars you mm. know when douglas was up for that award very chummy you know very jokey <laughs> so yeah i I think all those scripts are in there. And like the story I like to tell is that, you know, the way, especially because, you know, I wanted to see how he was developing as a screenwriter and what he was bringing to films like Top Gun, for instance, which had been worked over extensively before I got to it. So I would read them in order and try to, you know, really get that sense of what's changing. What's he done? Did he do this? Did somebody else do this? And my husband likes to say, you know, I, I think there were 10. He did 10 drafts for Top Gun. The sh- he did the final shooting script. So he did all the 10 leading up to the shooting script. And my husband likes to joke, like, those few days when I would come home from the archive, I just seem more aggressive. <laughs> like, I was just like, bah! you know, because you just get steeped in this stuff, you know, and you read these drafts, and it does take a while to read through them. I mean, and I would read them in, in order just to kind of get that sense of what was changing and the minutia of that. Did you get any sense of, I mean, it's natural, the the, the films that he is script doctoring, He's not coming up with the original concept. He's not coming up with the characters in some, in some respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he's continuing other people's work versus something he's coming up with from page one. Did you get a sense that the, the, the ones he wrote himself were more 
personal? Did you did you feel like you had a better insight to Warren Scarron, the man, from reading his original screenplays versus you know the final draft, the tenth draft of Top Gun? Sometimes, I mean, I also feel like with Top Gun, the things that he brought to that movie, you know, that's you know just a testosterone vest. Right. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, it's I have a lot of affection for these movies because I spent so much time with them. But I would probably be more of a Beetlejuice person than a Top Gun person. But um, yes, the characterization that he developed in Top Gun, and you know, when sometimes when I say that, people roll their eyes. Like, is there characterization in Top Gun? I'm like, well. The fact that it's such a hit, I think, yes, it's it's got a lot of flash and whatever, but you also need some characters like, you know, um, Kelly McGillis as Charlie or, um, you know, the Meg Ryan character. That was, Scarron didn't come up with that character, but he definitely made Carol more of a, he wrote the scene where she connects with Maverick after the death of Goose. And, and you know, that really kind of, humanizes Maverick, you know, and that was, that was Tom Cruise's big thing. You know, he was like this character on the page is kind of an asshole, you know, how do we flesh him out? Um, and, and, and Tom Cruise was, you know, Scarin could see that he was very savvy about his career. He had just done risky business and, you know, he was, had a plan and his handlers had a plan for him. So this was definitely, um, I think that was one of Scarin's, you know, real, skills. And I think that's a reason that he was, you talked about this earlier, you know, invited to be there for the table reads and yeah. invited to um rehearse with like um oh uh forgetting their names, um Catherine, the great Catherine Catherine O'Hara. Yes, O'Hara and Beetlejuice, you know, and, and working with these actors. And on Batman as well with Jack Nicholson. You know? One of the things, uh, well, Scarron spent a lot of his time <laughs> fighting with the Writers Guild for proper credit. Yeah. The work he was doing. And as someone who was, uh, I was a freelance illustrator for 10 years. Oh, wow. And, and during the second half of those 10 years, when I started noticing that I was spending as much time fighting to get paid for the work that I had already done, versus doing the actual work that's when it really started to turn for me you know i was like well this isn't really fun anymore because i'm not i'm spending you know 40 percent of my day doing actual illustrations and i'm spending 30 percent of my day trying to get paid for work that's already been done and published and i i felt for him <laughs> you know reading a lot of that stuff of how much of it was and not that this should be shocking but how much of politics was involved of just getting proper credit for what you did. Now, of course, you know, the writer's guild has to have rules because at this point with the, the the way Hollywood blockbusters are made, you're getting 10, 12 writers working on a project and you can't have 12 names on a screenplay card. That's just ridiculous. But it, it, it's so funny because like, as I'm reading it, right. And I'm, I'm, I know already where Scarron's career is going after Top Gun. And yet as I'm reading those pages, I'm getting nervous for him because I'm worried he's going to get screwed for not getting the credit that he got. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's one thing for everyone to know that you helped get Top Gun made. But if your name's not on the screen, does it really count? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's It would be easy to just forget for yeah. people in Hollywood to say, well, his name's not in the – what's the name on the screenplay? The, the Cash and Eps. Cash Those and are Epps. the guys that wrote Top Gun, not Warren Scarron. Now, obviously – 
you know, it, did, it worked out for him. But I really did feel for the guy because it's like just how much time he had to spend writing letters and just fighting for for just acknowledgement of the work that he put into these films. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons I really wanted to write the book, honestly. I mean, it was Warren, but it was also this Byzantine process of credit. And a lot of people don't know about the arbitrations. And I was really shocked to see that the Writers Guild, the manual, like not much has changed <laughs> those rules. And, I, you know, I was writing this in 2009 to 2000, I don't know what, 15, maybe, and about a period, you know, that was 20 to 30 years earlier. And I was really surprised to see how little had changed. And, you know, it, it's popped up. I mean, it, we see it all the time come up these credit grabs, you know, these credit fights. Um, I cite an article that was in the New Yorker that was, you know, I thought really interesting about um, more recent things, like I think the Mark of Zorro, there was a big thing, you know, any, any big movie is going to have a lot of these people. You know, Success as many fathers, as they say. Exactly. And I was interested in that. It was very complicated and confusing, but I was really fascinated with how that worked out and how much, yeah, how much effort. Scarin got better at writing those letters. He got very good at, you know, and then they, I think they became something of a little bit of a game, but obviously a lot was at stake. And yeah, totally stunk that he didn't get credit for Top Gun, but he did get associate producer credit. And I, I, you know, say this in the book that I think that is a real testament to how um, Bruckheimer and Simpson and Paramount felt about him mm-hmm. that they did that. Um, you know, it's sort of retroactively, they're like, okay, we're going to give you this credit and here's what you have to do for it. So he attended a lot of, um, you know, test screenings and things like that. But I mean, he had been on, he, he, one of the, you know, my favorite experiences in the archive was, um, listening to a lot of the tapes of the phone calls because he would tape his phone calls, you know, in Texas, you only, you don't have to tell the other person, you know, it's a <laughs> one way ruling. Um, but also I think he was doing it. It wasn't like because he was paranoid. I think, you know, he was in Austin and that was part of his deal memo from the beginning. He didn't want to spend, he didn't want to move to LA and he didn't want to spend more time than he had to there. He knew that that was an environment that could really not be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would record his conversations so he could go back to them. And so listening to, you know, he was almost done with, I think the first draft of Top Gun, you know, his first version of it, of the rewrite when um, Tony Scott and Tom Cruise called him late one night and he had to kind of, you know, take in their, what they wanted to put into the script. Um, but also I have, uh, not I, but the archive has an audio of the um, table read for Top Gun, which was so much fun mm. to hear the whole cast break into You've Lost That Love and Feeling. That's great, yeah. <laughs> everybody started singing that. It was pretty hilarious. That that should have been like a Blu-ray bonus feature or something. I mean, <laughs> I, that that would be fascinating to hear the table reads of any movie, I would yeah. say, you know, just you to hear Scarin's them all. typewriter going during the yeah. table read because he's making changes to the script <laughs> while he's tack-a-da, tack-a-da, tack-a-da. <laughs> that's Well, that's that 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 gets into something else I wanted to ask about was that that does say a lot about the trust that the producers in the studio had in him that they allowed him to work so closely with a what could be a volatile movie star 
Because, yeah. I mean, if you're the producer and you're trying to get Top Gun or Beverly Hills Cop 2 or whatever, but I mean, specifically with Top Gun, because he worked so closely with Cruz for so long, like you're trying to get this film made, right? And Cruz is still like, well, I don't know. I don't like the screenplay or I'm uncertain about this or that. I look like, as you said, I look like a Maverick looks like an asshole in the scene or whatever. If you're the producer, you're so worried of keeping everything together and then you're going to run the risk of like the screenwriter working closely with crew. Who knows if the screenwriter is not going to say something weird that's going to set the star off and the whole thing just crumbles. But that, that says something a lot about how much trust they had in him that they were like, they could trust him to that. And, it's, oh, you go off and work with Cruz and you'll, he, you're going to get us to where, where we need to be. Well, I think, you know, he had that first project with Don Steele and she was mm-hmm. a huge supporter of his. Um, she recommended him for the Top Gun rewrite and he did these, you know, phone calls with, um, Bruckheimer and Simpson and, and Simpson, Don Simpson, the volatile, crazy, you know, he had problems. He, I think, really attached, became attached to Warren, you know. And so I think like that, they they decided pretty quickly, like, you're our guy. Um, And then Tom Cruise reached out to him, you know, privately for Days of Thunder. Um, You know, they met at some Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles to discuss that when it was still called, I think, Daytona or something. Yeah, I think that. (laughs) <laughs> terrible title. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. You can see how like Days of Thunder. Even you know, wrote like, that like in those private notes, like terrible title. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, before we move off of Top Gun into the other stuff, I do want to mention just very briefly Fire with Fire. Yeah. Because I had never seen that movie. I remember mm-hmm. it. I remember yeah. seeing the trailer. It played on cable. Yeah. Uh, when I was a child, you know, incessantly. I remember. I remember the trailer. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. And but I had never seen it, and I was like, "Well, I want to see it because it's his first screenplay credit." Yeah, and it's it's a lot better a movie than I expected. <laughs> it really like okay, the situation very cliched. It's a bo- a boy from the wrong side of the tracks and a preppy girl, and they're they, they fall in love, and of course, the, all the authorities don't want them to be together because the these girls are nice girls. And they don't want the nice girls to be with these these ne'er do well boys. Yeah. So it's very very cliche. But like I actually I watched it and it was sort of funny because I I put it on and uh, my wife's in the other room and every so often she's like how is it and I'm like this really isn't that bad <laughs> like it's like and and I gotta say and maybe it's it's kind of like uh, association bias but I right. have to figure. That's a lot of Warren Scarron. Part yeah. of his performances. I think Sheffer and Madsen are, are yeah. really pretty terrific in it. But it their characterizations, they he he I mean, I know that again, he he is working on the material from other writers. Yes. But and so we don't exactly know how much of that is theirs and how much of that is Warren Scarron. But I thought that the two main leads, especially, were very specific and kind of real. Yeah, in a way that that movie you could imagine that movie n- not being like being very cartoony, and it's just okay. We you know you all know the story, and we're going to go through it again. But it 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 was just a lot a lot less cliche than I would have imagined, and I thought that has got to come from the writing and then the performances. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I remember it's I'm hazy on that now because it was so long ago. That was my second book. Um, I'm working on my fourth, but there was a. Um, yeah, I think Scarin, you know, sent memos. I think he said something at one point, like, what if we switch the dialogue? What if we make the 
the girl say that, you know, it was like hmm. this kind of unexpected shift and Don Steele and whoever else was involved. I remember they were like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. So I think, you know, that was, that was Warren being creative and, and that again helped leverage him up for Top Gun. Yeah. By the way, speaking of titles, I think the original title for the movie was, was Captive Hearts. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Right. And then they renamed <laughs> it Fire with Fire. And let's, <laughs> first of all, that has nothing to do with anything. Fire with Fire. Like what? <laughs> and I remember. I watched the trailer and again, I remember the, the cable channel that I had as a, we had as a child, the local Philadelphia uh, station called Prism. Mm-hmm. And they used to run trailers over and over and over and over again. They would have like blocks of trailers they would run. And I remember the fire with fire and the way they made that movie sound is, <laughs> is like the boy and the girl run away. And then like, you know, the, the authorities pursue them and then like they, Fight the authorities almost, they don't, they don't say it in the trailer, but you get the impression from the title that it's like Craig Sheffer's going to get like a machine gun and fight his <laughs> off. And that's not at all. It'd be a little bit of Badlands going on. Yes. Yeah. Like a Rambo almost. <laughs> right. Like it just had that little, and I was like, okay, I get why they went with fire with fire. Cause it's just more, it's more dramatic than captive hearts. But, it, but in terms of the reality of the movie, captive hearts is actually much more. <laughs> You know, re- I remember, you know, it's coming back to me now, looking at lists and lists of titles. And I'm pretty sure that was the project that, you know, Scarum was weighing in on that as well. Like <laughs> the studio sending title after title after title. Fire with fire. So, ooh, yeah. he's going to, Craig Sheffer's going to have these people fall into pits with bamboo spikes sticking out. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not at all what that movie is at all. But I will say, it's, it's just, a, I was really pleasantly surprised because it's just, yeah. a, it's a much better movie than, the setup sounds like it will be and everything else. And again, I think that that's partly got to be at least, uh, Warren scaring. So, so I admit, I did rewatch top, top gun again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still don't like that movie. I didn't like it when I was a kid. I don't like it again. I can imagine from the detail you get into it, how much better scaring made it. Like in terms of the Kelly McGillis character, she's like yeah. a nothing until yeah. he got onto it and turned her into an actual partner you know like yeah. an equal partner in terms of yeah. the emotional heft of the movie to Cruz's character yeah um, no I mean he really he really did turn that piece around I mean unbelievably so he did he did and it, it was you know it was fun to go through those scripts and to see that coming coming out in the scripts and to say like oh I see the change here you know mm-hmm. from the last version to what he's adding here in his notes is there a lot of private stuff that's not his work notes it was it all just kind of a big pile of stuff or is it mostly the screenplays and the stuff related to the films no there's diaries in there that you know i quote from um when you know i think it adds something um Mm. you know his letters to people are very intriguing very creative so there's a lot of material i mean there's so there was a lot of material for someone you know who didn't work in the industry long, you know, mm-hmm. um, there was just a lot of written material and I was so grateful for that. Um, I remember getting a behind the scenes tour. I had two fellowships at the ransom center while I was working on this book and I got a behind the scenes tour at one point and they took, you know, this group of us, other fellows through this room and it was where they had all these different computers. And I'm pretty sure Scarin's archive is the first archive that included computer material mm. at, 
at the Ransom Center because they have a lot of, you know, literary archives. Um, and they had to get different computers because he was, he was really into gadgets and he was always getting the next best computer. <laughs> so in order to read his different floppy disks and all of that, they had to have <laughs> like three or four different, you know, computers in there to, to make sense of it all. And in fact, there was a lot of duplication because I think they, they weren't sure. So they were just printing everything out. And I was like, I think I've read this. I don't know. You know? Yeah. His career straddles that, you know, the, the computers coming in yes, and becoming yeah. a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, again, the, the audio recordings, that's just, that's such an amazing piece to be able to have, to be able to hear people hear movie stars when they don't think anyone's ever going to hear. They're not performing. Yeah. Uh, you know, at least in this sort of the literal sense, like they're just being real and hearing them talk about this project. That's all this stuff. It's so fascinating. So he moves on to Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, another film that I'm not a huge fan of. I love the first movie and the second yeah. one to me is just, it's just not very funny. It's just <laughs> like an action movie. It's Beverly, to me, it's Eddie Murphy just being too cool for school. He doesn't want to be funny anymore, but that's another, you know, neither here nor there. But again, another thing that he worked on quite heavily. Yeah. And dealing with another kind of touchy star a little bit, but he got that, he helped get that film finished yeah. and, and, and then it becomes another massive hit. And there's something, again, there's something that's amazing about the way Hollywood works is that it seems so huge again to people from the outside. It seems so massive. And yet it really is like a company town yeah. and word gets around and everyone knew that Scarron was the guy that really helped land, no pun intended, Top Gun. And yeah. that, that helped him cement his career even though as i mentioned earlier his name's not on the film yeah well and what's interesting to me about beverly hills cup too is that there were some other austin writers um bud shrake um and his writing partner who were also you know at one point worked on that film and so go into the arbitration and there you've got everybody you know duking it mm-hmm. out for credit yeah but Eddie Murphy's um, manager, I'm forgetting somebody. It was, it's a whole, I think it was his manager. Yeah. Or, I think I remember yeah. that. It was yeah, his manager. Yeah. Getting, you know, credit. They're like, Oh yeah, there's this document. And like, okay. <laughs> so again, he moves on to that, moves on from that onto, and he meets Tim Burton and he goes yes. on to Beetlejuice. And again, adapting another screenplay that had already been written. And then he gets, you talk about, he works with Catherine O'Hara. He works with Jeffrey Jones. Uh, it was, I found it really, I love that movie. I love Beetlejuice. I just, I saw it as a, I saw it as a teenager and I've loved it ever since. And I watched it again recently and it's like, Oh, this thing just is such a great, unique piece. And I would imagine for a screenwriter, uh, it might be a little, uh, it might be a, a little, um, What's the word I'm trying to say? Difficult to handle. And that Tim Burton, I'd say, is one of the few directors that is known outside of his films. You know, but I think the average person knows who Tim Burton is at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a Quentin Tarantino level, like a Kevin Martin Scorsese. There's only a handful of directors that maybe get booked on talk shows to talk about their films. That's pretty rare. And I think a lot of people, when they know Tim Burton has directed a movie, it becomes a Tim Burton movie. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's a writer behind all this that's helping craft all this. And you talk about that, like originally, Beetlejuice had uh, in the the script they had two children. Yes, and, two and you know, girl. and then they were like, they pare that down, like, no, make it one right. teenage daughter. That yeah. you know, and you're like, yeah, when you when you watch the film, I'm like, yeah, how else it how else could it have been that? It's perfect. Right. Well, and you know, at that time, Tim Burton wasn't really Tim Burton. He had right. done he was just, Big Adventure. He was big Adventure, right? Um, what I love is that. 
Tim Burton came to Austin. You know, he was Mike Simpson's client and Mike, you know, managed, he was Warren's agent too. And he put them together. And um, what's so interesting to me about that is that I'd say in recent years, maybe in the last 20 years, there's been stuff, quote, Burton's been quoted dissing Warren mm. um, in different ways. And that was not the case for a long time. And it's confusing to me. And I did try to talk to Tim Burton. I never was able to. So I don't know what the story is there. Um, but, you know, they really got along well. And there's some, I have a picture in the book of them together doing that, you know, Holly, uh, American Gothic recreating <laughs> right. Grant, Grant Moore, you know, um, and like, you know, Tim Burton went all over Austin. He went to the state capitol. You know, all these hilarious pictures. I'm like, huh, that's funny to see Tim Burton, you know, at the military installation at the state capitol. But they really clicked. And um, I think that's, you know, a reason that he Warren was then also brought on Batman, too. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, again, for, for people too young to remember, it's hard to overstate how huge batman was yeah. i mean just what it 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 really did change movies uh in a, in a way that we're all still dealing with today and i mean good lord at the time of this recording we are just a couple of days no we're not even a couple of days we're one day past the super bowl right. which featured an ad for the flash movie which has michael keaton I know. as batman <laughs> you know i mean it's like the, the, and, the... and that was a big risk having Michael Keaton mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Batman. Um, a lot of people were like, what? And, um, you know, I, I just, Warren, you know, met Jack Nicholson. They didn't really hit it off at first, but then they did. And in part, it was because, you know, Warren Nicholson liked Nietzsche and Warren understood <laughs> Nietzsche and worked <laughs> Nietzsche into the character of the Joker. And there you go. But, uh, Back to Beetlejuice, um, you know, Warren did created one of the scenes that I love so much, which is like our first glimpse of the afterlife, mm-hmm. uh, which looks like any awful waiting room in the Department of Motor Vehicles. You know, <laughs> I mean, I if you've been to the Austin DMV, um, which, you know, I know that's a New Jersey acronym. They don't really call it the DMV here. But, um, yeah, it's it's funny to me that that's kind of how that played out. <laughs> Yeah, that it, really that film really does hold up really well. And I was I was genuinely shocked how far along uh, with Beetlejuice in Love they were. Like yeah. that guy, I I you know for years, for decades now, we've been hearing about Beetlejuice two, and apparently Burton is up for it, and Keaton is up for it, but and it's still never been produced. But I I had no idea that it had gotten that far along in the pro. Like Scarron had written a finished screenplay. I mean, they were still working on it. Yeah. But I had no idea. I that seems shocking to me that it never got pushed in development after spending that much time on it. Well, I mean, I could see, you know, that was Batman jettisoned Burton. And, you know, it just, I'm not surprised after, you know, seeing so many things that get stuck in development, having screenwriter friends and, you know, hearing about all the things that they've worked on. But it's funny, a couple, two different screenwriters have reached out to me about making rewrite man into a movie wow and they were both pulled in one more than another by this idea of beetlejuice and love and you know maybe even just focusing on that project at the end of warren's life you know working on this movie about um 
you know, the afterlife and for a writer who, who dies himself, it's kind of interesting. I mean, in terms of the projects that he worked on, I mean, those are nice, big, pulpy projects that everybody's heard of. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, like the script, the co-screen writer of Batman and Beetlejuice and Top Gun. These are all projects people have all know about today. They're still in the zeitgeist right yeah. now. So, I mean, yeah. you, I could totally see that. So now normally at this part of the show is where I get into the final film and we get into the details of it. I think anyone listening to this, I don't need to get into the plot of Batman. Nobody doesn't know the plot of Batman. It was released on June 23rd, 1989, of course. And it was the biggest thing ever. It changed everything about how comic book movies were done. We're still kind of basically living in the shadow of that to this day. The Marvel movies and DC and everything else. And again, you know, Michael Keaton at 70 years old is suiting up as Batman again. And so you know, there's a bunch of things that you get into the in, in the book we talk about. And I, I wanted I was found fascinating. First of all, most people know. That Vicky Vale was originally going to be played by Sean Young, yeah. and actually they actually got pretty far into shooting with her, and then she had an accident on a horse and broke her arm, and they had to replace her with Kim Basinger. And she he worked very closely with Sean Young, and you mentioned this in the book, and I found that really found this really interesting that he found it difficult to just change over to Kim Basinger because he was writing specifically for who he thought Sean Young was as a performer. And that is something I never would have really considered that that's how at least this screenwriter would work, that he was writing things tailored to this actress. And then all of a sudden it's no, 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 it's, it's a different actress. And he he found that a little difficult to just transpose everything over. Yeah, he really did. I mean, they, they, he liked her and he liked um, her as Vicki Vale. He thought it was a more interesting Vicky Vale. And mm-hmm. so I think then when Kit Basinger came in, you know, it, it was, I think he saw it a little bit as a deer in a headlights kind of situation for her and, you know, but still was tasked with trying to help her through it. And she brings something else to the movie, which I think works at certain points, maybe not as well at others. But you know, the thing that I found like bananas was that she was having an affair um, with one of the producers and I'm forgetting which one. Was it John Peters? Maybe I think it was John Peters. Yeah. Yeah. And so then at one point, Warren finds himself being called in to kind of be like their (laughs) therapist, you know, I mean, and to me again, I know that sounds kind of gossipy and whatever, but I, I mean it more as that is a testament again to how like people trusted Warren, you know, and, here he is working on a film where he's got to show, you know, this iconic character, Batman. He's got to show another side to him and a side that would, you know, in, have a relationship. And why is it so hard for him to have a relationship? And then it's kind of playing out, you know, off screen in this <laughs> relationship, you know. So. The thing I think I will say about Sean Young and I, I, you know, great actress and loved her in, in a lot of other movies. She has kind of a... Um, kind of a, I think like a slightly darker weird energy yeah. to her that I think I mean as much as I would love to see that footage it's got ex- got to exist somewhere some of the yeah, stuff she true. shot um but she to me has a similar energy to Michael Keaton mm-hmm. and Kim Basinger's Vicky Vale is a much starker contrast yeah. to Nicholson and Keaton and so I could see that 
maybe just coming off and being a little more interesting that you've got just such a much, you, you just have a greater contrast between the persona of Vicky Vale and what Kim Basinger is bringing to it than Sean Young. Sean Young to me would be a much weirder yeah. Vicky Vale. And you've already got Michael Keaton weirding it up as Bruce. Now you could argue maybe that's why they're such a good pair. Yeah. Um, I will say even as a teenager who loved everything about Batman because I deeply needed batman to be taken quote unquote seriously yeah no 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 I and then it, it finally was and it was everything i wanted but when i watched the film over again and I, I watched it not that long ago i'm like yeah i'm not buying that bruce wayne and vicky vale are gonna last you know like maybe <laughs> maybe the sean young vicky vale i would have but yeah. i'm like nah they, these two are not they're not in it for the long haul <laughs> I, I definitely get what you mean sean young even reading you know some of the lines early in the early drafts it was a different Vicky, Vicky Vale. And Warren says that, you know, in a letter to Sean Young, he writes when, you know, he writing to console her and he's Kim Basinger, someone else's Vicky. I can't comment if she's good or bad. Would George Bush make a good Pee Wee Herman? I can't comment. And I mean, that's it. It's like apples and oranges. And what I like about the Kim Basinger playing Vicky Vale is that to me, that brings out the comic book side of the character, you know, like you said, the contrast, the visual contrast, but also kind of a um, a character contrast as well, I think, that comes that I at least could see in certain comic books, especially depicting women. And so, you know, that comes through a bit. Have you watched Batman lately? Lately. Um, Last couple of years, let's say. No, but I used to, when I was teaching, I would always use the museum sequence um, Mm -hmm. when we talked about, you know, postmodernism in film and TV, because I just love that, you know, the whole defacing of the art. And um, I think it works so well. And the scene where Nicholson says, tells Bob, don't, don't mar that one. I kind of like it. Yes, I kind of like that one, Bob. Yeah, I kind of like that one, Bob. I I watched them long ago. First of all, I, we screened it for, uh, my wife's nephews who are oh. seven and 10, they had never seen it because mm-hmm. again, to them, it's an old movie. And <laughs> it's sort of funny to, it's sort of funny to, to watch it with fresh eyes. Cause look, like I said, I saw Batman in the theater nine times <laughs> in its original run. I just kept saying, I always spent all summer seeing it because again, I loved every minute of it because yeah. as much as I love the Batman TV show and I, yeah. I, I did that, I did as a child, I did as an adult. Yeah, I, it, it irked me that all comic books were pow, biff, suck. Right. You know, it was all that. And so having Batman taken seriously was, yeah. was a very meaningful to me. Now, but then watching, watching it, you know, we think of, I think we generally don't think of like the eighties as a time of filmmaking, films being individualistic, uh, expressions of the director, the way we right. think of the seventies, you know, we're like, Oh, the seventies was the, you know, pre star Wars. You had all these people working and, and you, we don't think of the eighties like that, but when you watch Batman today, mm-hmm. it, it is as specific and weird compared to Marvel movies today, which again, I love the Marvel movies. I've seen every right. one of them, but in terms of their individual, individualistic, traits batman tim burton's batman looks like something out of 1973 (laughs) you cannot imagine a comic book movie being made that looks and reads like batman did in 1989 it is so strange and weird and we we showed it for the nephews and i will admit the older one they both got a little rammy because (laughs) there's like a 25 minute section in that movie where there's no batman 
Yeah, yeah. He's not Batman. And like to a seven year old, they're like, what? what? Yeah, what? What's well, and and you know, thinking back to the memos and stuff, like yeah, even some of the executives were like, "Wait, where's you know, where's Batman? I, I won't, you know, I can't follow this." Michael Keaton is Bruce Wayne. It was just funny to me. I'm like, Jesus, people, you know, read the comic book and get a grip and figure it out, you know. <laughs> and it really, it really is a much more. Uh, I mean, again, some parts of it you know, don't work as well as as I remember. But again, when I was I was seventeen, and I just loved every bit of it, and I, I ate it up. But it is fun to watch. It's like, wow, this really is very specific to the people that made it, and you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get this done nowadays. And going back, I don't want to keep beating him up because it's <laughs> not fair. But we got to get back to Bob Kane a little bit. Yeah. In that, okay. Um, anyone that knows the history of comics. Uh, we, we, we live, we live and breathe with, uh, the, uh, the, the, the grim stories of the, uh, the parallel fates of Siegel and Schuster mm-hmm. and Bob Kane. Right. Because they were both, they both came up at the same time. They both created characters that basically built an empire, except Siegel and Schuster were not good marketers. They were normal guys and they took DC. Uh, for the, at their word and DC didn't treat them very well. And that's how it ended up that they basically got pushed out and it took Neil Adams and Jules Pfeiffer and a, and a publicity campaign to shame DC and Warner brothers into giving Siegel and Schuster even a meager pension and a cut of the Superman profits. Bob Kane, who was around the same age as Siegel and Schuster was much better at that. He managed to make sure that his name, that signature, that little box Mm-hmm. With the word Bob Kane in it, yeah. which even appears in the movie. Yeah. For Pete's sakes, you see that scene where uh, Knox gets the drawing and it's yes. the bad creature and it says Bob Kane down there. Bob Kane was always able to, in the, in the, in the public's eye, marry Batman, Bob Kane. He was able to, you know, a lot more people knew that Bob Kane created Batman than the average person. Anyway, you know, outside of Stan Lee, nobody else knows who creates what. And the fact that Scarron had to deal and Warners had to deal with Bob Kane as much as they did just it made me laugh because it was like this is a guy who knew nothing of what he was talking about nothing and the idea that he got to even nudge Tim Burton or Warren Scarron into like well this is what Batman is is so comical to me and I gotta wonder what Warren Scarron thought of dealing with this guy I think he was like, oh here we go you know (laughs) and he even I think wrote in a memo I think I quote it in the book like to Tim Burton, I think he said something like, Oh, I talked to Bob Kane and you know, his ideas are crap. So <laughs> let's keep going. And I just, I love that whole letter, you know, from Bob Kane with the stationery and the bad. And he's like, as you must know, I created, you know, and like, oh. Batman can never be seen in this way. Like he was very, he had very specific, you know, feelings about what he could be shown doing and not shown doing so you know i think warren was just a pro by this point and he was like okay here's another another person in the line the chain and the batman chain of people that he had to listen to or you know pretend to listen to it was very long oh it's it does sound like a a, kind of a nightmare project to work now now did you in in warren's uh papers is there any embryonic versions of batman before he got to it did you get to read any of that material I think I did. Um, 
I'm sure I did. Yeah. And because I, I've never got, I've never got to read any of that. I would love to know what the script looked like when it was just Sam Ham. Yeah. Sam Ham story. I, I, you know, I'm thinking it's, it's a long time ago for me right now. Sure, of course. And I, what I remember is it's the same thing. Warren sort of fleshed things out more. And, you know, I think Sam Ham still. Is he still alive? He still yes. kind of pipes up and says, like, you know, Warren Scarin. But, um, you know, it's all there in the archive. You know, anybody can go up there with some time and you can even find the finding aid for the collection online and you can see at least what's in there. It's not been digitized for, you know, lots of reasons. Um, but you can see the list of um, drafts, I believe, for Batman. Well, that's something that, that uh, again, as a comic book fan, um, I, I go when I after I read your book, I sort of thought about it. And I remember that. And this is not a knock on Sam Hamm at all. But Sam Hamm was able to parlay his credit on uh, on the Batman screenplay as a calling card going forward. And I remembered there was a point where DC comics, I think it's for the 600th issue of detective comics got Sam ham to write like a three part story. And that was a big thing. It was like, Ooh, the writer of Batman is writing the comic for a couple mm-hmm. issues. And of course, you know, they're not going to bother with writing co-writer of Batman, but it's, and again, I can't blame Sam Hamm. He's not going to turn down opportunities that come to him because he co-wrote Batman. He's not going to be like, oh, no, no, no. You know, Warren Scarron wrote that. I'm not deserving. He's not going to do that. But well, at Warren the same time. was dead. Right. Warren. Exactly. It's like he he's it, Sam Hamm by his nature, just because he's still alive, gets to become kind of the sole author of Batman simply because Scarron's not there to pipe up. My book's out there. Right. And people have found right. it. I mean, I, there's a screenwriter in Los Angeles that I've gotten to know a little bit. And he, he buys 10 copies at a time and gives it out because he thinks the arbitration thing is so, you know, <laughs> by itself. So germane and people need to understand it, you know. And, um, one last thing about Batman before we, before we sort of wrap up is, is it was, was it Scarron's idea to make Jack Napier the killer of Bruce Wayne's parents. That was his addition, right? I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason, again, that I'm hesitating is because that was two books ago for me. Right. But yeah, um, that was one of his, um, things. And, and he was, he was very good too about logistics and like, well, we can't have, you know, this person not know that Batman is also Bruce Wayne because it has to tie together. I mean, the, 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 I write a lot about the filming of the final sequence and how like Jack Nicholson was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. You yeah, know? Why am I going to the top of the church? <laughs> why is she with me? You know, there was yeah. a lot of con uh, convolutedness, but there were also sets that had been built and paid for. That <laughs> it was just, this was a blockbuster. This was like the perfect example to me of that, you know, all the things that had to be taken into consideration and Warren could do that because Warren had, before he did this, he had his own below the line production company. He was, you know, on a chair of um, in Dallas, which literally worked for the Dallas TV show. So he understood kinds of like, if you put money here, you know, and then you delete the scene, then you've lost that money. So he was aware of that. On Batman, and I think that also was important in terms of what he brought to that film. The reason I asked about that is because, first of all, I can remember as a you know as a comic book nerd, 
that part bothered me because it's like, well, that's not from the comic. That's not, you know, no, Jack, Jack the Joker is not involved in Batman's parents' murder, blah, blah, blah. But I understand why they do it in the context of the film because it, it brings it full circle and it connects Nicholson's Joker to Batman in a, in a much more profound way. But the reason I bring it up is because I remembered many decades ago, I got a copy of the original screenplay to Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. And the penguin and the Joe penguin and Catwoman are the villains, of course. And in the original screenplay of that film, you find you find out that the penguin, when he was like a criminal coming up, was also involved. <laughs> in murder. And in fact, he hires Jack Napier yeah. to kill. And I remember going, "Oh, come on! Like, <laughs> is every Batman villain connected to the murder of the way? How far are you going to take this?" Out, God, oh, so be as high far high. as possible, yeah. you know, it's like what Two Face was involved, and the, you know the right. man matter. And I thought, but I thought that says something about how resonant that addition to the Batman mythos was. That future screenwriters, and maybe this was a Warner Brothers dictum, that future screenwriters had to keep following that. They're like, okay, no, you know, now we got to have the Penguin involved in the murder. Well, yeah. <laughs> Story, right? So it's gotta, it's gotta keep coming. Keep I'm glad they, glad they dropped that. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I said it's, it's hard to, um, I think understand for people who haven't been through it, what that has got to be like to be attached to such, I mean, Top Gun was a massive hit. Beverly Hills Cup 2 was a massive hit. Beetlejuice was a massive hit, but nothing like Batman. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, just it, it straps you to a rocket. And it takes it takes off in a way that just it's is almost bewildering. And you know, it did help Scarin with his certainly with his his financial situation. You do get into some of the details about the royalties that he earned on some of these projects. Yeah. He had profit um, participation, and oh boy, that eventually, honestly, after he died, that was was sold off at a sort of key time for different reasons. But yeah, I mean, it was it was huge. It it he was. He was in the top tier by that point of screenwriters. I think you talk about there's there's one thing where his mother went around telling people that her, her son. Home. Yes. For the retirement home. Yeah. My son wrote Batman. Yeah, I'm Batman's mother. Basically. Batman's mother. That's right. Yeah. That's not Batman's mother. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's just, it was such a cultural phenomenon in a way that I don't think with all of our split interests nowadays, you can have. I mean, you could yeah. certainly have movies that make a billion dollars avatar two just made a billion dollars and avengers endgame made a billion dollars whatever but there's the 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 cult just the the sheer footprint that batman left on people and and one other thing i do want to i love that you get into scarin's sort of bemused feelings about the, all the merchandising tie-ins yeah. and yeah. that his favorite was the batman breakfast the cereal, cereal. Yeah. Yeah. oh my god the day i brought that out of the box in the archive and the way that the archive is set up in the reading room, there's like the film and the photography, you know, are on one side and then the, the literary people are on the other. And I could see them looking over like, what? You know, you got a fellowship to open a box of cereal? <laughs> Great, you know. But I love that. I was like, look at this. You know, the cereal had been removed, but the box is all there. I think the toy was still inside. So. <laughs> I love. I had the Batman cereal. I bought it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm 17, but I was still buying. It. I was like, eh, I was in. I was all in. I was yeah. all in. So, so yeah. Now we get into you know. At that point, he was you know ill, and you say that you know Batman didn't give him cancer, but people know that stress has a lot to do with your health. 
and just the sheer stress of working on a project like this really got to him. And, and do you, again, from, from your knowledge of reading his papers and his diary entries and things like that, was he somebody that really kind of internalized his stress? Like he couldn't get, find healthy ways to get rid of it. Is that part of the reason it, it made him so sick? Um, no, I mean, he had cancer, had had cancer earlier. Right. And I don't think he took care of it completely as he should have at that yeah. time. Yeah, he had that sore on his chest that he kind of ignored. I mean, to the point that it was bleeding. Yeah, it was. It was shirts. I thought, oh, my Lord. Shirt. Um, but yeah, the str- I think stress does have a factor, right? And that was 19, what, 90. And I think we've learned so much more about the detriment of stress Um, he had, he really worked on cultivating, you know, healthy outlets. He was macrobiotics, you know, that's why he embraced Eastern medicine. Um, when he was dying, he rode his bike a lot. Austin has this great hike and bike trail that, um, Lady Bird Johnson was very instrumental in, in creating around the lower part of the Colorado river that throws flows through town. And he would love to ride his bike around that, um, so yeah, he had I think he had a lot of healthy outlets, but I think it was definitely a stressful profession and was getting more so as he got more successful. Do you have any insight as to why he kept it so private? Why he didn't want to talk about it to even some of his closest I think friends he and family? believed that he could rebound from it and he knew that if people in Hollywood found out that he was sick that it could really hurt him from a career standpoint and I think that's why he kept it private and you know and he was on a lot of morphine for pain toward the end so i think he just wasn't you know it was definitely losing perspective i I said it's and you get into the details of his friends that were around him and that there was a little bit of kind of like a power struggle in terms of some friends wanted to treat him yeah one way and other friends another way and again he had an ex-wife to deal with and he had other relationships and yeah, you know. it was very complicated and and convoluted at the end, and sad. It's a sad story because who knows what he would have done? What yeah, else? yeah, it's hard to imagine. Again, to, to have a career in Hollywood as brief as his was, and then you look at the films that he he touched. And I, you know, I, I one of the things I like to consider on the show is like the legacy of these people, what they leave behind, and like are their films still looked at? Are you know, are they, are they still part uh, of like? Yes. <laughs> and you start a cultural conversation and I look at it and I think about the four films that he touched, uh, you know, fire with fire accepted top gun, Beverly Hills cop, Beetlejuice and Batman, all of which are still ongoing concerns. Top gun Maverick, the biggest hit of last year, Beverly Hills cop four, I think is still on Eddie Murphy's IMDb page as like in production or in, you know, in development Beetlejuice two seems to never quite go away. They always still talking about doing it. And of course, again, as I said, just a day ago, we've got Michael Keaton as Batman back. You know, he's, it's got that much cultural resonance to old people like me that are yeah. excited. Then, oh, yeah, the flash part, that's all right. But Michael Keaton is back as Batman. That's how big it is. And so the man only touched a handful of projects and yet all of them are still ongoing things in Hollywood. It's just, again, it's a batting average to nearly unheralded. Yeah, it's an amazing story in that way. And I also think, you know, his experiences behind the scenes with screen credit arbitration, hugely instructive. You know, when I was teaching film history, I would always say, because I had a lot of production students, and I would always say, you know, guys, if you get lucky, you're going to be doing a lot of 
script doctoring, you know, and it's, you have to understand how it works because it's very complicated. So you got to be ready for that. So that was one reason I wanted to tell this story was to really get into the nitty gritty of that. You sure did. And you're, you're involved with his estate now, correct? I am, which is insane in a way, you know, I was very resistant when they, um, his, you know, friends who run it right before he died, Warren, you know, knew he was going to have the money was still going to come in. And he set up the Warren Scarron charitable trust. And then after the book came out, um, you know, I'd gotten to know a few key people in his life. And they came to me and said, we'd like you to be involved because, you know, eventually we're going to die. And somebody's got it, you know, Warren better than a lot of people. And I was like, wow. oh, oh, no, I don't do that. I'm moving on to my next project. You know, mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, you really need to do this. And I was really resistant because it just felt weird and overwhelming. You know, there's a lot of money that still comes in. And to take that responsibility on of giving it away in somebody else's name, it was really overwhelming to me. But it's become this amazing thing. And um, yeah, we recently, you know, Warren was cremated and um, his ashes have been scattered over the years in different places that have personal meaning to him. Um, and there was a, you know, a little bit of the cremains left and his uh, good friend and the executor of um, the estate wanted him in the Texas State Cemetery. It's hard to get in there. <laughs> it's a pretty full place, but we were able to get him in there. And um, in fact, his um, headstone is being created as we speak, and it's going to have um, a sculpture of a bat flying out of it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, and a quote from Warren from a letter he wrote to um, the daughter of a good friend and where he talks about, you know, that kind of stress outlet where he says, well, it's time for me to hop on my bat bike and ride around the lake. You know, it's a beautiful day. The dogwoods are blooming. You know, when we were doing, we did a small ceremony um, to inter the ashes uh, late last year. And um, while when... The speaker started speaking. I said a few words. Um, a hawk came in and landed on a limb of a tree right over the spot <clears throat> where we the ashes were to be interred. And then as soon as the ceremony was done, the hawk flew away. <laughs> so uh, I think that's very Warren. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an enormous compliment to the, the story you tell in your book that so many people in his life, uh, this many decades on, I, you know, felt like they saw the real man in these, those pages and wanted you to be part of it. That's, yes. that, that's an enormously, that, that's a, that, that's an enormous thing. And so you should be very proud of that. Cause it's, I am, I am. I mean, it was just hugely overwhelming and, and like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And in fact, um, a copy of the book, this, I didn't, I didn't do this, but a copy of the book is in the box with the ashes. And I was like, wow. oh God. We don't know if, what if Warren didn't like, you know, like, oh no, you know, I don't know if Warren would have liked the way I told his story, but it's in there for eternity. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he would have, because I said, I came away from the book, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, not knowing anything about him outside of the name, you know, just a guy that wrote Beetlejuice. He's on the, he's, his name is on some of my favorite movies, some of the most um, touchstone films of my teen years. And then I came away from your book of really liking this guy and being frustrated with him at times, you know, yes. and when he's, yeah. when he's ignoring the sore on his chest and I'm like, what do you do? You know, 
got the you've got all the money in the world. Go take care of this. What are you doing? Um, it's a crushing he, story. Yeah. 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 Um, but, and that's, you know, that's something else again that the average person doesn't think about that just because Warren Scarron or anyone is, is deceased doesn't mean the money stops rolling in. You know, someone's got to do these, those checks are cut and they have to go to somebody. Batman yeah. is still making money. Batman 1989 is still making money for people. Listen, so, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, man. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That another thing that's been remade a bunch of times and still makes money forever. It's so funny. I mean that. Yeah. yeah, how much money came in from that during the pandemic? I was like, whoa, okie doke, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, but like I said, I came away from the book really liking the guy and fascinated by the his creative process and how he was able to synthesize material that other people created and and come up with ways to develop it, but not have it seem like tonally very different that we've all seen movies where you're like, wow, this, this seems like what's this scene. This scene seems like a different scene from the rest of the movie, you know, and that a lot of that, that's, that's good writing. It's good directing, but it's also good writing to be able to kind of say, all right, I'm going to take what's here, develop it, push it further, but it's got to be all of a piece. And and Scarron was terrific at that. And yeah, it is a tragedy that we'll never get to see what he could have done with those talents moving yeah. forward. But it's, again, it's an incredible legacy and it's great that this book exists for people to learn about the real man. Thank you so much. That's a huge compliment and I really appreciate it. Yeah. I would recommend anyone who people that, that follow the show know that, you know, we tend to talk about people from much longer ago because that's the people that have passed and we're dealing with their legacy. And unfortunately we get someone a little more recent who passed away very young. And most people listening to this know the Batman movie. And, and if you're interested in, the story of Hollywood in the eighties, just to, just the kind of behind the scenes of what Hollywood was like in the eighties, check out this book, check out rewrite man, because I said, I found it really fascinating. And I read the whole thing in like a week or something. Like, I was just pouring into it. It was just going from one thing to the next. It was a really fascinating read. So, uh, Allison, I thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, I can't, I have your other book, the uh, making That's best true. years. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait to dig into that because that is one of my favorite movies of all time. And when there was, I learned on, you know, via your Twitter account, there was a whole book just about the making of that movie. I'm like, this is written for me. This is, this is exactly the kind of thing I want to read. Is I can't wait to dig yeah. into that. I know. Thank you. Yeah. I hope you love it. I love working on that. I love that movie and, um, yeah, it was such a thrill to write that book. Oh, I'm sure I will. I can't wait. So again, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate getting the chance to talk about Warren Scarron with you. It was just great. So why don't you um, tell people where they can find you out on the internet? I'm on Twitter, um, AG Maycor. Um, Am I the only one still on Twitter? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Instagram at Allison Maycor, Allison with one L. Um yeah, and you can find my books. They're all published by UT Press. So the University of Texas Press website, they often have um, discount codes too. Um, Best Years is coming out in paperback in the fall too. So it'll be cheaper. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to read that. I'm so excited. to read. I read a lot of books for this show. Yeah. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm deep in a 500-page book for another episode. But once that's done, I'm digging into Best Years. Oh, I just- great. That movie, uh, that movie is just, just the bee's knees. <laughs> so a whole book about it is so fascinating. Movie. So, well, again, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. And of course, uh, everybody, if you want to find all the back episodes of Fade Out, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm on there too. Uh, <laughs> at Fade Out Pod. 
And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, please just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another fade out before you know it. But until then, we've reached the end of this particular script. So it's time to fade out. Tell me if I'm crazy. But that wasn't just another night for either of us, was it? I mean, we, we both got to each other, didn't we? Why won't you let me in? Got it. I've loved you since I met you. But I don't know what to think of all this. I really don't. Look, sometimes I don't know what to think about this. It's just something I have to do. Why? Because nobody else can. Look, I tried to avoid all this, but I can't. This is how it is. It's not a perfect world. It doesn't have to be a perfect world. I just gotta know, are we gonna try to love each other? I'd like to. But he's out there right now. And I've gotta go to work.